This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Today on the COVID Report, we hear from the clinical director of the Teddy Bear Clinic, Dr. Shahida Omar, and uh, the Teddy Bear Foundation strives to protect children through prevention and intervention programs. And she joins us here on the show to unpack exactly how they go about doing so. Dr. Omar, thank you so much for joining us here on the COVID Report. Could you please start by telling us more about the Teddy Bear Clinic and how the NGO originated? Thank you so much to Vow, to all the listeners out there for this absolute privilege and opportunity. So the Teddy Bear Clinic has been in existence since 1986 in response to children's needs. Previously, all medical examinations were adult-based and were not focusing on the needs of children. So since 1986, the founding member, our late Professor Lorna Jacqueline, who realized the gap and introduced and implemented a child abuse clinic focusing specifically on the medical legal examinations of children, which was then followed through with psychosocial support and medical legal support. And this developed into a fully comprehensive, holistic and integrated intervention for victims of child abuse. So all forms of abuse, including physical, sexual, emotional neglect, child trafficking, all forms of violations that victimized children were implemented and has been running since 1986, where we work with victims and their families based on an ecological model. We cannot work with a child in isolation because a child is part of many systems nested in many layers. So in order to heal a child, we have to look at the broader system, family, friends, learners, uh, peers, etc. And as I mentioned earlier, we based our interventions on an ecological framework. We work from a multidisciplinary perspective where different professionals are brought in in assisting, supporting the child victim and their families. So once again, I just want to say that it's a whole basket of services under one roof where multi-professionals provide interventions in terms of the needs of the child. Fascinating stuff, doctor. Now, could you please also take me through the types of programs that the Teddy Bear Clinic offers? And um, you briefly alluded to it just now, but can you also take me through the approach that you and your organization would take in helping children and families that seek help from you? I do understand that um, a child uh, suffering abuse while tra- while that may be tragic and unfortunate, the the circumstances and the situations differ between them and adults um, suffering abuse. So how is the child's healing from the traumatic experience prioritized in terms of the approach that you guys take as an organization? It's a very important question you have raised about the approach and our responses to children who have been victims of abuse. Of course, you cannot have a trickle-down phenomenon or treat children as miniature adults because children's needs and children's abilities to express themselves or articulate their pain and trauma can be quite challenging. And if we just look at how children 
have been socialized through the decades where children are seen and not heard, where children's voices are not allowed to surface. So, of course, I think there's been a huge paradigm shift in the last decade where children's voices are certainly encouraged to be articulated. So what we do is the important approach we implement is that regardless of what the child is saying, we always focus on the here and now. What is it that the child is needing now? What is it that the child requires or what kind of help would ease. So it's about containment, but validation of the child, believing the child. Because often in the past, if we just go back a decade or two, children's evidence was viewed with caution, meaning that children's uh, disclosures were not actually believed or accepted even by the judiciary by the criminal justice system when cases went to court. And we've actually created a total 360 degree shift around that, that why, what would motivate a child to co corroborate a story or create or confabulate a heinous, atrocious, age-inappropriate offense? Where would a child get those graphic details to share and illustrate, and also to understand that often when children are violated, it often comes with intimidation, coercion, threats, where a child is silenced by the alleged perpetrator. That if you tell, I will actually say that you caused this, that you were responsible for this, that you are the slut, you are the whore, or that you asked for this, or if you tell, your parents will be killed. Now, for, for somebody that's an outsider, it might sound so ludicrous that why should a child believe these kind of threats? For a child, that it's a real danger. It's something, it's impending on their lives, their well-being, their family uh, being disintegrated. And therefore, there are many reasons why children would not tell. And this is our stance where we believe we adopt the approach that it, when a child comes forward, just recognize, appreciate, and understand that it takes a lot of bravery and courage for a child to come forward and say that this has happened. Remember, child abuse, sexual abuse is not a social conversation. We do not talk about sex and sexuality. Even as we speak, I think there's still a lot of paucity around the subject, a lot of uh, hesitation in families to actually engage in dialogues around sex and sexuality. We can just go back a few months when the DBE uh, um, implemented the life orientations program speaking specifically to sex and sexuality and the huge furore that was created, people in society went against this process and said that it was harmful and not helpful. So I think it's just to sketch the landscape out there that people are still afraid to engage and discuss sex and sexuality, even in a positive sense of empowering their children or enabling their children 
to understand what is acceptable behavior and unacceptable behavior. So what we do always is we shift the blame. We say to the child, what happened is not your fault. You are not responsible for what has happened because often children are notoriously egocentric and take responsibility for everything that goes wrong in their lives um, and blame themselves. And they feel that they are unworthy of love. They are dirty. They are ugly. They are bad. They are worthless. And therefore, these bad things have happened to them. So therefore, they see it as their responsibility, their fault. And we often feel that it is critical to shift the blame, to validate, to say, I believe you. Because children often feel that they will not be believed that people will turn their heads away or say to them, and then we know that's a reality. If you, if a child goes to his or her mother and says that my grandfather uh, touched me on my uh, genitalia, be it penis or vagina or whatever, what is the mother's immediate response? I think generally, don't talk nonsense like that. Don't ever speak like that about your grandfather or uncle or best friend. I think so. it takes a lot of courage for a child to come forward and we need to commend children. So what we have to do, and that's what we do, is to say that we are very sorry this has happened to you, but we are very glad that you are speaking about this. And I think something that we also impress on is confidentiality. Now, when we speak about confidentiality, it's not unlimited open confidentiality. It's conf limited confidentiality where we say to the child that whatever you share with me will be between you and I. However, in order for me to help you and take this further to ensure that this does not happen to you again, I will have to speak to X number of people, whether it's law enforcement, um, it's the medical doctor, it may be a counselor, a social worker, a psychologist, so that the child does not feel betrayed, the child does not feel deceived, and the issue of trust has not been violated. Because often, who is the perpetrator? The perpetrator is somebody that has a relationship with the child, or is somebody that may have um, some kind of connection or is known to the child. In, in an overwhelming majority, it is somebody that has a relationship and has easy access and availability to the child. So, um, you know, obviously the issue of trust, because the child feels that this person is supposed to be family or a friend or somebody connected, and there's some kind of relationship, affection, etc., and it's misuse of the child has been the issue of trust has been violated, the child feels deceived, the child feels betrayed. So when a child comes forward and makes a disclosure, what needs to factor these you know, elements that it's important that the child understands that confidentiality, I will have to tell the child that these are other people, other strangers, other adults in his or her life, I'm going to have to bring them into this equation in order to assist, support, and drive this process further. So, you know, those are just the overarching principles that we institute 
in working with children. And we cannot work, as I've mentioned before, that we do not work with the child in isolation. Obviously, have to get consent from the legal guardians. However, if the legal guardians are the alleged perpetrators, then we have to bring in statutory social workers, law enforcement, because we are looking at the best interests of the child and ensuring that the child is not subjected to any further victimization or traumatization. Thank you. A very detailed breakdown of the approach that uh, the Teddy Bear Clinic employs when it comes to dealing with the very sensitive matters of child abuse. Now, Dr. Omar, can you please take me through how this approach that you've just broken down so eloquently has been impacted by the pandemic and the lockdown restrictions that ensued. I imagine things like contact sessions would have been very difficult to conduct at the heights of our lockdown here in South Africa. Can you please take me through the ways in which the pandemic has impacted your work? So yes, if we look at the pandemic, and I'm just going back to March, when we heard, when we received notification that there was going to be this total lockdown and that obviously people will not be allowed to leave their homes. The immediate, immediate concern, worry, uh, and, and I think it was shock. What are we going to do about our children? What are we going to do? Because I think what you need to understand that it's a misnomer. Often we think that home is the place of hope, home, is a place of security, and yes, that is what it should be. However, what we have experienced over the years and what lockdown has taught us is that home can be the place of danger. Home can be the place where children are trapped, immobilized, and children have been subjected to immense violations emotional, physical, where the extent of uh, physical injuries have been so severe and children have been referred to the medical hospitals and for medical intervention. So if we just look at the beginning of lockdown and to where, I'll just go back a month ago when we were still at level two, we had seen over a thousand children who were victims of abuse. So these children were not able because under normal circumstances, children go to school, they have peer engagement, they have life orientation, teachers in some schools, access to social workers, so access to recreation facilities or even access to uh, you know, the Sunday school or pastoral facilities but none of this was available during the lockdown. So children remained within the confines of their home. They were fearful of going out because the fear of being stopped by law enforcement police, the fear that they might get hurt, the threats that they were not allowed outside by people within the confines of the home. So this was actually... Uh, um, you know, which it was, it was so worrying, so scary, but disturbing to see the unintended consequences, the negative effects. 
and how it impacted on the well-being of many children. We even reached out to a 10-year-old who committed suicide. We, you know, and, and we found that there were young children who were victims of rape, and it was within the confines of the, the, the home and, and family and friends. So this lockdown did not deter people from violating children. I think that was quite evident in our findings. Um, the way we had to reach out, so I just wanted to respond to your other question, is how did we reach out? We started thinking on our feet. We started getting data, providing data to families out there uh, so that we could communicate on WhatsApps. Uh, we started making visits in the communities uh, with protective gear. And then we realized that a lot of children were starving and starvation is a crime against humanity, which we cannot justify. And of course, in order to reach out, if you're, you've got hunger pangs but, and you're suffering from uh, child abuse, what is more uh, pressing? Of course, the hunger pangs are going to override everything else. So we had to reach out, distribute food parcels, uh, and, and we started connecting with children like that. And we started getting, in some of the cases that landed at hospital, we had to do assessments. And on follow-up, we, we found out and discovered that it was family members, it was siblings, it was significant others that were hurting children. And the numbers just continued growing. I think that is something that we learned quickly. And we also found that there was a correlation between domestic violence and child abuse. More than 50% of the cases where there was domestic violence, there was uh, child abuse. And, and a lot of the cases that were well, the cases that went to SAPS to report were actually turned away and often came back to our offices, you know, our different satellite offices where our social workers reaccompanied them and managed to support and ensure that cases were opened, that they received the necessary psychosocial support, all sorts of protective measures, and also in terms of nutritional support was provided. So again, we had to reach out in a holistic fashion, but in terms of therapeutic processes where children were already engaged in programs prior to the lockdown, what we continued was during the lockdown, sharing, as I said, we provided for those, uh, you know, had access to data, we provided um, uh, more data, but for those that did not have access to data, we sent out our teams to go and support them and sit outside with them, providing masks so there would be protective measures, uh, etc. We also used our music therapists who are actually trained uh, where in some of the programs engaged children from different areas in, in, in processing their feelings uh, before the session then engaging in, in the music where they would create different pieces. Now, remember, they're all in different geographic locations, but connected via the WhatsApp. And the facilitator was engaging each one of them. And then after that session, processing the feelings, after having gone through the engagement with 
the music pieces which each one contributed to. So we had to think on our feet. We had to be innovative and, and do our best. And uh, we continue to deliver support and reach out to children in need. Just listening to you speak just brings the perils that children have faced over this lockdown even brighter towards uh, the light. Speaking of, and this is a conversation we've had in multiple iterations over the course of the history of this show, the ways in which the pandemic has impacted uh, children's lives. Now, on top of the tragic instances of child abuse and all of that, there is also the issue of malnutrition of children, the issue of uh, children from certain um, so certain halves of the social divide not being able to access basic food uh, over the course of the lockdown. Can you take me through how this pandemic has deepened the problem here in uh, this country? And furthermore, what are some of the other challenges that um, homeless and children who also um, fall on the opposite side of the social divide and abused children have faced during this period? So as I mentioned, I think, you know, uh, we focused on self-actualization. So about therapizing children and families. And during this pandemic, it became very clear that we had to be in the here and now of where they were at and to focus on those needs. And it was looking at the basic needs of food and shelter, because I think many challenges surfaced or emerged, job insecurity, unemployment, um, you know, people not having money at their disposal to provide bread on the table. So the food insecurities were quite, uh, uh, was a startling revelation. And if we just look at the number of children that are in educational institutions, I think we're looking at 11.8 million um, and, and uh, just over 9 million were children who were ac supposed to access nutritional or nutrition school feeding programs. But with the lockdown, this was suddenly shut down. So children were not even having access to that. And that is where we had to be creative. We actually turned to corporates. We turned to the public. We started preparing food packs um, and, and reached out to families. And it, the, you know, the, the demand has been unbelievable. What we found that, you know, usually on a Saturday, the different regions, we have a court preparation program where, where cases have, uh, criminal cases have been opened, uh, where a case has been reported uh, of a child being abused and a criminal case then is opened and we then assist the child in preparing for the court testimony. So it's not teaching the child what to say, but to say it as it happened, also to allay any fears and anxieties around appearing in court. So for them to understand who's who in the zoo, the roles and responsibilities, and also to appreciate, uh, to speak specifically to truth and lie. We found that, you know, generally the parents that came to this program always had such, such a sense of, uh, pride, and the children would be well-dressed, well-taken care of, and, 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 and the parents as well, I cannot say were glamorous, but always neat and tidy. 
And these were the kind of parents that when we, on our Saturday court program, we generally always provide meals for children and treats for children. Uh, but they showed a lot of appreciation, but also expressed that they were, you know, they were not really that needy for that kind of support. We could actually distribute that to other needy children. But during the lockdown, these parents were actually so embarrassed and contacted us. We could actually see the shame, the humiliation, where they were reaching out, uh, reaching out for food because so many of them had lost their jobs and there was, in, you know, a lot of them were informal traders and now were not in a position to work or, or to generate an income to, to even provide for their children. And something that we also saw that, uh, people living in close proximity, the overcrowding, the poverty, and the conditions it created, uh, which resulted in more stress and in some situations, unintended physical abuse of children. The dynamics one can see are rather complex. What we did was we were approached by Section 27, and it was the... I think ELC, uh, where we had to you know, provide case studies. We had a, a family in Flockfontein where the mother had actually gone for a funeral just before the lockdown. And then she was not allowed to travel because of the restrictions. And her children, ranging from teens, from early teens right through to a, a five-year-old, uh, were left on their own. And they had no means uh, to food or support, and they were scraping the barrels, the, the bottoms of the dustbins. Uh, we had people actually going out there and found this to be true, where children had for more a few weeks not had food, and they were begging from the neighbors who had very little to offer. And, and so these were the kind of situations. So we wrote up these case studies. It was heard in the high court in Cape Town and a case against the Department of uh, Basic Education where they even commented on some of the things that we had narrated. And of course, it was an immediate uh, situation where schools were then once again forced to provide feeding schemes to children regardless of whether they were attending school or not. So I think that was also a, a proactive measure and also trying to be innovative and ensuring that the best interests of children are maintained. I mean, the pro, you know, we can go through so many challenges and so many opportunities. And the one thing we've learned through this process or through this pandemic, that you, one can actually become very bitter, bitter on different levels or turn this crisis into an opportunity to make it better. And, and actually create pathways where we do not see or find ourselves in the future struggling like this, where we are faced with another pandemic of any sort. So networking, reaching out to corporates, reaching out to communities. I think that a multi-sectoral, intersectoral approach has certainly helped because people have united and joined forces to reach out and help those in dire need.
Now, you've just alluded to it briefly, Dr. Omar, but what are some of the potential solutions to these challenges that children and families face pre, during, and post-COVID-19 pandemic? And how can listeners get involved and donate to the Teddy Bear Clinic to aid this cause? So, yes, pre, during, and post. And how can everyone out there make a meaningful contribution? I think everyone has a role to play and has a huge responsibility in ensuring that children and families do not suffer. Uh, So some people, if we're just looking at the kinds of contributions, in terms of volunteering, their services and support certainly is something that would be appreciated, uh, where they can give some time off to assist with projects and programs that we have, uh, you know, rolling out there into the communities. But in terms of uh, financial remuneration and support, we certainly appeal to all the corporates out there. And I think if even, even government, government needs to revisit and review their budgets. Because if we just look at this whole pandemic, uh, the the evaluation and unpacking of that where national treasury did not have sufficient funds allocated to it and then that is why we've been faced with so many challenges where there was even with you know uh, food distribution and even the supply by government by department of social development where the families that were supposed to be recipients of this did not receive it. So again, the irregularities is something that needs to be addressed. But how can we improve and and help society as a whole? I think, as I said, I think it requires a, a coordinated, integrated, intersectoral approach and prevention uh, so prevention and intervention need to work in tandem with each other. You cannot have the one without the other. That was Dr. Shahida Omar, the clinical director of the Teddy Bear Clinic, joining us here on the COVID report to take us through the work that the Teddy Bear Foundation does and the wonderful work that NGOs like hers continue to do over the course of of this pandemic. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1. 88.1. Or stream, stream. via www.vafm.co.za.